It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Seth Shore, CEO of Fifth Street Gaming and chairman of Downtown Grand Hotel and Casino. Since beginning his career in gaming and hospitality in 1991, Seth served as an integral member of the Wynn Resorts team, developing the International Marketing Department in Macau, their interactive gaming division, and the Wynn Collection of Fine Art. Seth and his partner Jeffrey Fine co-founded Fifth Street Gaming, which owns and operates five casinos. In early 2015, he was introduced to the world of esports and led the effort of developing the first fully integrated esports program at the Downtown Grand. He is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, a member of YPO, and sits on numerous boards of directors. Seth is also an avid cyclist, amateur photographer, has two children, and recently married Dr. Emily Shore. Seth Shore, welcome into the corner office. Thank you for having me, Brent. Happy to be here. Ah, it's great to have you here. I know we talked a, a few weeks ago, and I'm so excited. You're our, our first gaming industry executive we brought onto the show and uh, kind of opening us up into a whole new industry. I've worked a little bit that in recruiting, but we actually haven't had uh, someone. And you've, you've been in the industry a long time, and I'm really interested to hear about your journey into the corner office. But you know, we always like to start you know, with the early years. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like, Seth. Uh, sure. So I was born in New York City. Um, and moved to Atlantic City, New Jersey, um, huh. I believe when I was about six years old. Uh, so that was my first uh, experience being in a gambling market. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> my, uh, my father uh, at the time uh, was working with Steve Wynn, and we as a family uh, moved to Las Vegas in 1983. Oh, uh, wow. I actually lived in the Golden Nugget in downtown Las Vegas. No kidding. Uh, wow. as, yeah, some, some people say I was the, the male Eloise. <laughs> the uh, school bus actually picked That's me up right. under the portico share at the, uh, at the casino. And uh, in all seriousness, I really did uh, get very comfortable and familiar with the uh, casino resort yeah. uh, environment at a very young age. And I, I think the plant, the uh, seed was planted at the time uh, for my career. Well, that's that's really growing up in the industry, isn't it, Seth? <laughs> I think it, <laughs> I think it literally it. is. Yes, I actually give people who grew up in Las Vegas a, a bad name. You know, people when you say you're from Las Vegas, people ask, "Well, what did you grow up in a casino?" Of course, which most people roll their eyes and they're like, "That's ridiculous." <laughs> but I actually did. So, uh, you, you did. Know. I love it. And is is Dad still working today? 
Uh, my father is not. So he uh, retired yeah. about five years ago. Uh, right. He was uh, chief operating officer of Wynn Resorts, oh, uh, overseeing cool. the operations uh, in Las Vegas and Macau, China. And now he is a professional grandfather uh, to my two him. kids and my sister's little girl as well. Wonderful. Well, I remember my very first experience in the Wynn Resorts, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it, but the Japanese restaurant on the down floor, on the on the first floor, oh, one of the best evening experiences I've ever had. It's great food and a great yeah. atmosphere uh, overlooking a waterfall and really Beautiful. learning how Mr. Wynn and my father created guest experiences taking development and detail to a level that I just don't think any other developer in the world uh, really has uh, met their uh, the expectation they have set for their guests. And uh, yeah. It's so true. I, I spent a number of years with Disney in my career in the last four or five or in the, uh, on the theme park side. And, you know, I think Walt always had an eye for that as well, really creating that guest experience. And, you know, it makes it super special. But, uh, you know, I'll, as I said, I'll always remember that as one of the best sushi meals I think I've ever had. And I think we've been back once or twice, but the first time is always so special. So did, did mom work in the industry as well, or was she focusing on bringing you up? No, she was uh, focused on, on raising uh, me and my sister. Okay. So played an important role in supporting my father, of course, and yeah, uh, sure. really being the anchor of our family. Younger sister, older sister? Uh, younger sister. She lives in uh, Aspen, Colorado today. Her husband, uh, Michael Brown, is actually in the hotel business as well. Ah, uh, he's developed, <laughs> didn't go too uh, far away from it. <laughs> no, no. He's, he's a fantastic uh, hotel developer and operator uh, with properties in Aspen and Sun Valley, Idaho. That's awesome. So tell me about some of the things that, you know, maybe inspired you as a kid, as you watched mom and dad and grew up in a fairly unique environment. You know, I think it all came very naturally. Uh, when I was probably seven years old living at the Golden Nugget, uh, I really immediately noticed that there were not enough children uh, around that environment. And <laughs> right, I suggested to my father um, that I become director of children's marketing. And I had all sorts <laughs> of... Uh, ideas as to it. how you can make the children happier. And if you got children to want to stay in your hotel, of course, they have to come with their parents. So that was a great way of acquiring new guests. Well, don't tell me that was a precursor for Circus Circus, because I, I remember my, <laughs> my first time as a kid was going there. Right, right. On. So Circus Circus was around, but I, this was about seven years before the big family uh, trend, yeah, seeing yeah. hotel and resorts like Treasure Island and others that clearly were focused on the family experience. Well, that's really what Las Vegas is now. I mean, it clearly is so much of a family resort. There's so much to do there. I think Las Vegas, what it, well, what it isn't is a one trick pony focused on right. gambling only. And that's that change right. really right. started to occur in a meaningful way in 1998 with the opening of Bellagio. And that was the right. first time that massive integrated resorts were seeing more revenue from the non-gaming space than from the casino. The mm. casino obviously is still a critical uh, part of our revenue stream and guest experience, but really creating a holistic experience for all different types of guests has been what our city has done in an amazing way, quite frankly, better than casino resorts in any city around the world. Right, right. Uh, the convention yeah, business is critical to Las Vegas. Uh, the, yep. you know, the, the family tourists and of course the gambler. Um, but Las Vegas is truly a place uh, for everybody to both visit and now live as well. 
Absolutely. Terrific. Who are some of the other um, early inspirations? Were there, you know, teachers or folks that, you know, maybe you knew working, living there in the Golden Nugget and elsewhere that, you know, kind of touched you at an early age and inspired you and actually to pursue the career you had, other than dad, of course. Seeing uh, dad and Steve Wynn really changed the face of Las Vegas uh, from the 80s till the 2000s, uh, really was my focus and inspiration. But as I got older, of course, I was able to meet other great business leaders uh, mm-hmm. in this city, um, have formed a great relationship uh, over the past 15 years with uh, our great mayor, uh, Carolyn Goodman, mm-hmm. who actually uh, mm-hmm. founded the school my sister and I went to uh, yeah. 30 years ago. Uh, wow. our, our former governor, Governor Sandoval, and I have a great relationship. And I've really respected how Las Vegas and Nevada has a private-public partnership unlike any other city that I know of. I don't, mm, I'm not mm. saying that that type of relationship is exclusive to Nevada. And of course, other cities and states that have important industry does form a relationship with local government, but I truly don't think it does in the way that Nevada has. And it's right, the support right. of our city, county, and state government that has really helped us build an industry that's quite different than any other casino business in other jurisdictions around the world. That's awesome. Well, were you a good student in school? I mean, you must have been going with local kids there, right? Or were there other stops along the bus route uh, going down the strip? <laughs> yeah, no, of, of course. So I went to a school called the Meadow School, where my two mm-hmm. children actually go today. Uh, it is, okay. uh, you know, what I believe is the best school in, in uh, Clark County. Uh, right. Had a great education, really grateful for that opportunity. Uh, and then went to a boarding school in hmm. Carpinteria, California, outside of Santa Barbara. Oh, right. Yeah, down in my neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah, Kate, uh, Kate School, and that was, you know, quite frankly, the best experience um, in those very uh, formidable years, being introduced to international students. So, sure. you know, living with people, experiencing different cultures, an incredibly small class size. Uh, mm. I, I think I even created a few classes uh, in high school on, on subjects that I wanted to learn more about. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to go to the University of Pennsylvania. Ah, fantastic. Well, what about uh, back to those uh, Kate years? Were you involved in sports, music, theater, other things that, that you pursued outside? All of the above. I was a uh, lacrosse player, a, a long stick midi. Um, played a few okay. other uh, sports, but lacrosse was definitely my favorite. Played right. the bass guitar, which I actually picked up uh, in 2019 for the first time in 25 oh. years. Wow. Uh, and I was uh, very active in theater, which I do think has actually helped me mm. uh, in my uh, public appearances today and generally being comfortable in front of a big audience. You know, that's that's so common. We've seen that a lot with a lot of our guests that that, you know, either debate, right, which is also a, not only a good speaking skills, but a thinking skill. But drama is just such a wonderful way in which to, you know, get you comfortable speaking to strangers and uh, really hone your presentation skills. You know, it's interesting you say that because uh, I'm, I'm certain that that's true and certain that debate uh, has helped uh, many people and especially those that enter the political uh, landscape. Um, I never did debate. And I'm actually glad for my own style that my early training was really in entertaining people, keeping them Mm. engaged, even making them laugh. And I have found that, you know, that tactic has really helped in terms of getting people to maybe pay attention to what I have to say Mm. instead of looking at as winning an argument, really just getting someone to build a bond in a relationship and really enjoy what I'm saying and 
they tend to listen to it a little bit more. Sure, sure. Well, you've had quite an entrepreneurial career, and we'll, we'll get into that in a couple of minutes. But um, early on, did, did entrepreneurialism play out? Were there things that you did as a kid, raising money, or you know, maybe projects that you were involved with that um, you know you could kind of draw back to your entrepreneurial beginnings? Uh, sure. So you know, as many kids uh, in, in, in high school and college, I certainly had little side businesses, but Thank God hmm. my business early education was one where I saw how a traditional, large, functional organization was developed and managed. And mm -hmm, that's something mm -hmm. today that I lean into quite a bit, especially mm. in this age where we have so many great entrepreneurs. I think ever since, you know, the uh, introduction of, you know, the tech entrepreneur, you know, over the last 20 years, it's... Right been very good in some senses, but I've also seen an entire generation of business people that truly don't understand how a large functional organization works, mm, don't really so understand true. management, the pitfalls. Now, mind you, not having any experience with those pitfalls oftentimes gives them the courage and ability to take huge <laughs> leaps of faith because they don't really right. know the downside. So I, right. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I just uh, am very appreciative that my foundation was really in running a traditional organization. And it's more recently that I've built a technology company, uh, which may be more of the path of the tech entrepreneur. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, you know, I know that Kate, uh, which is a terrific school, by the way, I know it quite well, uh, kept you pretty busy during the school year. But were there summer jobs? Did you come back to Las Vegas and, you know, work in the casinos? Tell us about some of those. Yeah, definitely. My first uh, summer job, I was, I think, 12. Uh, <laughs> I was working in Laughlin, Nevada, the, the Golden Nugget oh, in sure. Laughlin. Yeah. I uh, had, I think that first year uh, was a lot of manual labor, painting a garage in 125 degree heat. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I actually, I also had my first analytical job at that time as well. Uh, the Golden Nugget Laughlin sits on the Laughlin River, which divides Bullhead City, Arizona and Laughlin, mm. Nevada. And at the time, in the early 90s, there were water taxis that brought guests from Arizona oh. to Nevada. And of course, huh. that was an expense. So the expense uh, had to be justified. So for a few weeks, I sat outside with a little uh, a counter and clicked away to count the number of people that took the water taxi to mm. then give uh, the operators uh, the data they need to see if huh. it was worthwhile to maintain that expense. Early data analytics. By the clicker. Uh, it, by the clicker. And you know what? But, but really just good old fashioned. Helpful. Yeah. Helpful and, and, and showed me how business decisions were made, you know, not yeah. just off the cuff, yeah. but really collecting the data. Yeah. Great experience. So you went to Penn. Uh, I'm also a Wharton grad. Love that community. Wonderful, you know, location. What, what made you decide to, to kind of pick up? I mean, I know that your roots were in the East Coast of New Jersey, but you spent a considerable number of years in California. What led you to go to the um, University of Pennsylvania? You know, I was uh, visited many colleges, as you yeah. know, people do, when, when trying to make uh, that very important decision. There was something about Penn and Philadelphia that really attracted me. I think it was mm. the history of the university. The city itself, I found to be exciting yet manageable. 
a great yeah, college yeah. campus, really integrated with the city. Everything about it just spoke to me. And I'm so glad I went there. Uh, Penn has, the relationships that I formed at Penn have, you know, been incredibly important to me, both personally and professionally ever since. Mm. Yeah. And you chose to study Asian studies, I believe. What what led you down that road? I did. So I was actually, I had my first uh, trip to Asia when I was uh, 13 or 14 years old. My grandparents oh. uh, took me on an Asian tour. I fell in love with the culture. And in nice. high school at Kate, I actually studied Japanese uh, for a few, for about three years and Chinese oh. my senior year. So, wow. and it was really an extension of that love of, of Chinese culture um, you know, I, I, in the future, it certainly helped, uh, in the casino business as, as there is certainly a, uh, large, uh, segment of Asian customers. Um, but I don't think that was my reasoning at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And have you kept those ties to Asia, uh, since your studies there in terms of work and or pleasure? Uh, I have. So I, mm -hmm. uh, both in high school and college had the opportunity to live with families in Japan and China nice. to study at Beida University uh, in Beijing. Um, and I worked in Macau, China from 2001 mm. to 2003, uh, right. which was a great experience. Um, spent a lot Big of time in Big gaming community there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great, great community. And uh, ever since then, I don't think, you know, every year or two, I have a reason to go back to Asia. Yeah. Uh, I, I went to Asia on my honeymoon a few years ago and right. uh, really love it. What was the first job you took out of college, Seth, after graduating from Penn? So also an extension of, you know, you'd asked about the summer jobs, you know, for basically seven or eight summers, I worked in every area of the casino business uh, from human resources to front desk. And uh, I was a casino host. Uh, so when I graduated Penn, was that within the wind resorts or did you bounce around a little bit? Yeah. So this was, this uh, predated yeah. wind resorts. It was all in right. Mirage Resorts, uh, which was Steve Wynn's former company. Um, right. Where Steve that, was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Correct. Uh, so I had an opportunity to work at Treasure Island, the mm. Mirage, and even Bellagio. Fantastic. When I left uh, university, I went back to Las Vegas, uh, worked uh, for Bobby Baldwin at Bellagio. Um, mm -hmm. And I was there for a little over a year when uh, Mr. Wynn sold Mirage Resorts to MGM. And okay. at that time, I had an opportunity to explore areas of the casino business that even today I'm very excited about. And that's really the innovative up and coming areas mm. of the casino business. So at that time, online gaming uh, was new to the world. Uh, this was, right. you know, 2000. And you saw a few early uh, online casinos uh, pop up in, in Canada. And I was going to go actually work uh, for Terry Lanny, uh, rest in peace, uh, who at the time was chairman of uh, MGM Mirage. And I told Mr. Wynn that I was doing that. And he uh, asked me, well, well, why aren't we doing that together? So mm. he uh, funded a company mm. that, that I operated and went and explored the world of online gaming for just shy yeah, of two cool. years um, until, of yeah. course, we came to the conclusion that it was illegal at the time. So we, we uh, had to abandon that project. But that was my very first taste of leading a company oh, okay. and really yeah. pathfinding in a uh, uncharted territory. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Did you have uh, leadership responsibilities early on in those days and people on the team and I did, um, less so with the online gaming operation as that really was just myself and a team of resources. 
But at that same time, uh, I also had the opportunity to build the Wynn collection. So when Mr. Mm. Wynn sold MGM, I'm sold Mirage Resorts, uh, he took with him about a dozen of the world's best, most historically important and valuable impressionist paintings. And Mm. he truly Mm. believes in sharing that artwork uh, with the world and our Las Vegas community, which still does not have uh, any uh, fine art museum. So Mm. I got the opportunity to actually build uh, a gallery, um, literally oversee construction, lighting, security, humidity Mm. control, built the programs, the docent programs for school children, uh, the gift shop. I learned how to create uh, you know, uh, the, the level of art, um, uh, merchandise that one would expect museum quality. Uh, and at that time, you know, it was, it was a small team, probably a dozen yeah. people, but it really, that was my first, uh, leadership uh, opportunity. Yeah. And it was a, it was a great one. It felt very important. You know, it wasn't just about generating revenue, but really right. about giving back to our community. Yeah. What were some of the those early challenges when you first started managing people, Seth? I think early on, um, while I always had a level of confidence, um, at that time mm-hmm. I was young. I was in my very early 20s, uh, right, managing right. people, you know, uh, two or three times my age. I think I learned how to be a respectful leader. And it really helped that even in my early 20s, I had had... Um, 10 years of at least part-time experience working throughout the property. So, you know, mm-hmm, while mm-hmm. that necessarily wasn't full-time experience, as I, you know, was able, I, I always felt it was important to have been in the shoes of the people mm. that I'm now expecting to follow my lead. Yeah. Yeah. Both from an empathetic standpoint and also knowing the job they did, I imagine. That's correct. And, um, you know, you've obviously had a, an exposure to Mr. Wynn over the years, you know, through dad. And of course, uh, I, I would be sure, obviously, meetings and so forth with him. If you, Looking back at some of those early years, what were some of the impressions that you had from him? What were some of the lessons that you'd take away? So many. I mean, even as mm-hmm. uh, a high school kid, it, it was Mr. Wynn who strongly suggested I don't study business uh at university, but rather, really, uh, he he was a literature major. So yeah. whether it was huh. literature or history, you know, he told me I'd have plenty of time to learn business on the job, or of course, go to business school, uh, right. graduate school. Right. But you only have a very small opportunity to really broaden your horizon when it comes to, to history and literature. So that mm. was great advice. Yeah. When it came to business, I think there are a couple different uh, things I remember and. First and foremost, just seeing a man so dedicated and so hardworking, and he would work six and a Mm. half days a week, and he demanded a lot from his team. But when you see a man with such great success uh, do it himself, it's hard not to be inspired Mm. uh, to be so dedicated. Um, There were also, I had a lot, the things that I I was doing for him... um, ingrained the importance of paying attention to detail. So for example, building that gallery, I felt like I was uh, the custodian of his children, right? These were paintings right. that were so yeah. important to him. Yeah. So the Many ways detail, you were. <laughs> when, it, when it came to lighting and mm. things that most people just wouldn't pay attention to, attention to, or would get to a point where it just felt like it was good enough, I knew that wasn't the win way. I'll yeah. also uh, mm. never forget at this time, because 
the wind collection was the only operating business uh, in what was to become a wind resorts. It was uh, the gallery was in the former Desert Inn uh, oh. hotel, which was shut down at the time. Yeah. I also right, had other right. random things under my purview, including uh, having to pick the on hold music and something like that <laughs> on hold music. Most people would just, you know, have a DMX yeah. channel or you right, know, some, right. some uh, playlist. Uh, or hire someone to do it. Mr. Wynn and I sat down and picked only a handful of songs that were allowed. And when he mm. called in, not that he was put on hold very often. Yeah, I can the, imagine. But if the music <laughs> level wasn't perfect, or I mean, he would call me and uh, let's just say in a very serious tone, remind me how important every detail yeah. of the guest experience yeah. is. And I, and I appreciate it. I, I never, so when so Mr. True. Wynn, uh, he has a very unique leadership uh, quality that I don't think many people could emulate because he did lead um, in a very strong way. But right. also when he gave you a pat on the back, there was certainly nothing like that. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your journey to CEO because you're really running two operations. You're the CEO of Fifth Street Gaming, as well as the chairman of Downtown Grand Hotel and Casino. Tell us a little bit about your path to those organizations and then, you know, give us a little thumbnail sketch of each of them. Yeah, sure. Um, some days I wish it was only those two, but we will start with those two. <laughs> uh, so about 15 years ago or so, I founded Fifth Street Gaming with my mm -hmm. partner, Jeffrey Fine. Uh, we started a management company that both owns and operates uh, certain casinos, and we manage okay. casinos on behalf of real estate owners and private equity firms. Uh, okay. We felt that there was an opportunity in the market for a company like ours to uh, to really um, create unique guest experiences, focus on niche markets. Uh, so two of our properties in North Las Vegas, um, one of them is called uh, the Silver Nugget. And we're actually in the mm -hmm. process of redeveloping that property and creating uh, Southern Nevada's first Mexican entertainment district. Uh, we currently yeah. produce massive rodeos and outdoor events and um, major concerts. And we really feel like that is uh, an important part of, of the market. And it's a very underserved uh, segment in our community. Uh, the Downtown Grand was a great opportunity that was presented to us in 2010, 2011 uh, by CIM Group. That is a, a major private equity uh, fund uh, based out of uh, Los Angeles and New York. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and we had an amazing opportunity to work alongside them to develop the property, to create the restaurants and the design and the casino experience. And we've been operating it uh, ever since. Uh, we're actually in the process of building 500 new hotel rooms, which we're wow. incredibly excited about. Um, yeah. The Downtown Grand is a very unique property in that it is fully integrated with the downtown city of Las Vegas. And, right. you know, while- Now, is that it, Fremont Street? I don't know if I've got my geography right. You, you're you're correct. Part? Yes. It's about, okay. well, we're one block off of Fremont Street. One block off. Uh, okay. Which mm -hmm. uh, is a great thing. Uh, we're a block away from the epicenter of downtown, but we also have our own unique uh, neighborhood that we have, you know, full control over. And mm. it's, you know, we have great restaurants and have created a an authentic pedestrian district much like you would see in on Beale Street uh, or in the gas lamp district in San Diego um, and obviously many areas uh, in New York City. Yeah, cool. 
Excellent. And how many employees today in total with the two or three organizations that you currently run? Well, over a thousand uh, employees, um, you know, mostly in our hospitality business, uh, restaurants, casinos, uh, hotel. Uh, and then I have uh, a couple early stage businesses as well. Uh, right. One of them uh, is called uh, Dunbar, which is an unclaimed property business. So we provide financial services to major banks and brokerage mm. firms and essentially provide a service around unclaimed property where we help these institutions stay in compliance uh, and locate their lost account holders. So hmm. many people don't know, but there's tens of billions of dollars that gets abandoned to the various states uh, every year. Wow, and really? we huh. help mitigate that uh, by working with banks to locate their lost account holders before they're hmm. complied to abandon the property to the state. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. Um, wow. So lots going on in uh, in your world, Seth. Um, I, I recently heard it's sometimes though can be a little uncomfortable having your answers questioned rather than your questions answered as a CEO. Have you been in that situation? And if so, how do you handle that? I often see my role as one of staying far enough away from the weeds where I maintain an objective and clear position of a company that I'm obviously very intimately familiar with. Mm. And therefore, the questions that I ask, I really see as the basis of facilitating a conversation and mm -hmm. trying mm -hmm. to explore areas that I have questions or concerns, right? Most of which I uh, always start off as making observations. And, right. you know, sometimes uh, the observations lead to uh, having to change a policy procedure or some sort of business course correction, or sometimes my observations are answered with the information that I didn't have and were not issues that I may have thought them to be. Hmm. Yeah, cool. How would you say your leadership's evolved, uh, your leadership styles evolved over time, Seth? And if so, how? Yeah, there's no, no doubt about it. I, um, yeah. I had a, I've had a few mentors, um, and I don't know, not that long ago, probably six or seven years ago. Um, so at the time, I was probably in my mid thirties. Um, I was incredibly passionate, but I often led in a way that was disruptive to the organization, obviously mm. unintentionally. So what I mean by that is. Sometimes I forgot when you wear the CEO or chairman hat, you have to be careful. I have to be careful in what I say and where I say it. Um, right. And, you know, I, I just had to learn over time how to really you know, manage differently. Um, and I never wanted to disrupt people's lives. I made mistakes by having people um, move to Las Vegas uh, and really they ended up not being right for the position. And, you know, that mm. was a, a terrible experience seeing, you know, uh, an individual move with his family and uprooting. Have, you know, uprooting. Right. And so I, mm -hmm. you know, my hiring and recruitment practices are different. Um, I was definitely mm. guilty of, you know, emailing people over the weekend, which, uh, I think <laughs> is a terrible habit if it's not, you know, mission critical or literally right. a fire, which I've had, I've had literal fires, um, right. but, you know, uh, but, but 
you know, when it's not necessary, life balance is so important. It's something that I've personally struggled with and I'm now Mm. much better at. So I really respect the life balance of my team members and, you know, I've come up with other ways of, you know, getting my thoughts down, but not disrupting people at times that are unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's been said that the CEO truly drives the culture of an organization and particularly when, you know, you founded one, which is your case, what what would you say is kind of unusual or unique about the cultures in which you currently run and operate here? You know, each one is different. So I do have, you know, six or seven different businesses. It's not one management or holding company with different, different business verticals, but each one's different. And the culture of companies, um, in my experience, are very much contingent upon what phase they're in. So, sure. you know, it's it's it's. Um, I have certain expectations in my more mature companies with hundreds or thousands of employees. There's a very important way to manage uh, those people versus my early stage technology company, which now has a dozen people, uh, commercial mm. streaming solutions. Um, also known as Connect TV. And that culture is very different and one that's probably more similar to a, you know, Bay Area startup. Right, right. You obviously have been hiring a lot of people, both directly that work for you as well as broader in the organization. Well, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? It, it really depends on what I expect from them. You know, it's mm. definitely not a one-size-fits-all strategy. Um, I have... Uh, you know, it's a very different um, uh, process if we're hiring, let's just say, a food and beverage server at one of our restaurants uh, versus a senior leader to one of our companies or an engineer for our technology business. Mm-hmm, it also mm-hmm. depends on what resources we have. Um, we've always relied on professional recruiters in one capacity or the other and, and have found them to be very helpful. Uh, but even there, we've worked with different people who maybe have a stronger focus in certain areas, uh, whether that's, um, you know, we've had certain uh, recruitment help with companies that are just amazing in uh, finance and IT. I don't know right. why those two right. seem to go together, but they yep. do. Yep. Um, you know, yep. others that are more broadly focused on hospitality. Is there a common thread, though, you know, beyond the qualifications of the job they do? Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. look, most skills are trainable, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think it's that I focus on the personality first and foremost, and and, and this is based on hopefully what we can find, you know, through their resume and through um, speaking to their other employers, um, but somebody needs to be reliable. (laughs) Let's face it. I mean, if if, if a person is not reliable, nothing else really matters. Um, And Trust me, I've had, especially in the hospitality business, plenty of people who just weren't reliable. But assuming that the right. person is reliable and responsible, um, everything else is is personality. Are, do they have a good attitude? Are they willing to learn? Um, you know, do they work well with others? Uh, those things are really important. Um, sure. But it depends on the job. You know, some jobs are very technical. You know, I have IT support staff and engineers that. In that sense, they just have to be really good at what they do, and their personality may not be as important as people I have working for me in my call center who are doing right. you know, direct sales on the phone. So I can't say it's exactly a one-size-fits-all 
makes good sense. Well, we're just about out of time, but we always have one last question we ask all our guests, Seth. And you know, what what career and life advice would you give to someone who perhaps has their eyes on the corner office, or or maybe more importantly, you know, wants to kind of cut a, an entrepreneurial path like you've got? Well, this one uh, isn't easy, um, mm. but I have found that having a healthy work and life balance and having a wife that is my partner uh, in mm. life uh, who truly does her best to understand my businesses and, and often shocks me how she does, who, you know, she is my confidant. Um, that gives me a, an emotional balance that a, I believe, you know, puts me in the right uh, frame of mind every single day. And it's, it's the thing I'm definitely most grateful for. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Seth Shore, chairman of Downtown Grand Hotel and Casino, CEO of Fifth Street Gaming, and two or three other startups that we didn't get a <laughs> chance to get into much. Well, I'm going to have to invite you back, Seth. But thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. I've really appreciated it. And I hope I have an opportunity to come back. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.